and welcome to chapter 44 of A History of England. This is David Beeson and we're going to get to know Britain's first Prime Minister. Prime Minister was once just a term of abuse. It was used for a minister who'd got too big for his boots and tended to lord it over the others without having done much to deserve his superior status. These days the title is official, though in some cases the behaviour may be very much the same. You'll remember that back in the early 18th century, there were some pretty big changes afoot. The king still appointed his ministers and was in effect the head of the government, but he could only get things done with a majority in Parliament. It was possible to engineer the kind of majority he wanted, with promises of jobs or straight bribes, but it was helpful to have someone inside Parliament managing that process for him. It was just as helpful to Parliament to have one of its members, answerable to it, speaking to the monarch on the one hand and to them on the other, on behalf of the government. Individual ministers could speak for their own departments, but someone who spoke for the whole government had to be one of their number with overall responsibility for all of them. Over the next few decades, it became increasingly clear that politicians had to stop using Prime Minister as an insult and get on board with the idea of actually having a Prime Minister that Parliament could call to account for government as a whole. Of course, nothing stopped them insulting him. In fact, when it comes to insults, it can be helpful to have a single person as a target. They just needed to invent some new insults other than Prime Minister to hurl at him, but being creative in the minting of abuse has never been beyond the scope of human ingenuity. Robert Walpole was a country gentleman with deep roots in the loamy soil of the eastern county of Norfolk, an image he cultivated assiduously. Presumably, he felt that being of good country stock made him seem grounded and sensible, which he was, though he owed little of that to agriculture. After all, we've already seen him making money from the South Sea bubble. You'll remember that he pulled that off more by good luck than by good management, since he was only saved from buying back into the company at the wrong time and losing a lot of money by the inefficiency of a postal service that delayed his letter bidding for more shares. However, that simply made him a fortunate businessman, but he was clearly much more a man of business than a farmer. He'd also been a Whig politician for nearly 20 years. He'd even picked up a nickname. Robin is another form of Robert, and it was a name given to him by his electors when he first entered Parliament. He'd held various ministerial positions, often with financial responsibility, which had helped him build his own personal fortune as well as the country's. Getting rich by holding financial positions in government was pretty much standard practice at the time, though it could lead to awkward consequences when the minister lost office. Indeed, when the Tories came to power at the end of Queen Anne's reign, Walpole found himself jailed for embezzlement, even though his trial had shown he hadn't kept any of the funds involved. Access to the purse strings of power offered opportunities, but with the ups and downs of party politics it wasn't entirely risk-free. When the South Sea bubble burst, what was needed was someone to steady nerves and bring back some calm to the markets. 
Walpole's image as the solid, safe Englishman from solid, safe English farming stock made him a front-runner to play that role. The fact that he'd expressed some mild reservations about the company and sold out his shares strengthened his position, as did the fact that no one knew, and he wasn't saying, that he'd tried to buy back in. With his experience of financial management, he was well-placed to come up with some solutions to the problem. That's just what he did as soon as George I called on him to form a government. The South Sea Company's directors were dismissed and the shares were handed over to the East India Company and the Bank of England, which was a private company back then. The South Sea Company survived and would keep trading in that reduced way for another century. Walpole's colleagues in Parliament were hanging on to his every word. What he was delivering was a rescue package. It meant that things might not be quite so bleak as they'd thought. Sure, some poorer people who'd overextended themselves to buy shares might now be reduced to penury, but most of the elite might not suffer irreparable harm. Some, of course, would pay a higher price than others. A number of ministers were disgraced and dismissed. One of them, John Aislaby, was jailed. He'd been Chancellor of the Exchequer, the British Finance Minister, so it probably made some sense to make him the main scapegoat, particularly as he'd had a £20,000 gift from the company. So he had a couple of years inside before retiring to a pleasant existence in his home county of Yorkshire. Aislaby was a great choice as scapegoat. It helped that he was also a major rival of Walpole's, which made him a convenient fall guy, as well as an appropriate one. I'll leave it to you to decide to what extent that convenience was purely coincidental. But Walpole didn't strengthen his position just by getting rid of potential rivals. He also converted other possible competitors into supporters, by helping to protect them against the trouble the South Sea bubble might have caused them. That included two other leading ministers who, like Aislaby, might have challenged him, but ended up serving with him. He became very good at deflecting backlash from the South Sea bubble scandal, and that earned him the nickname of The Screen, or The Screen Master General, to go along with the old one of Robin. It also showed what an ingenious political operator he was. As well as senior colleagues, the most significant figure he screened in this way against the fallout from the South Sea bubble scandal was none other than the king himself, George I. This was particularly important since George suffered from a common problem of the Hanoverian kings. They tended to fall out with their eldest sons, the heirs to the throne. George I was hopelessly estranged from the future George II. Walpole had initially been on the son's side, but now he helped protect the father, who had been deeply involved in the South Sea Company, ultimately as its governor. He needed to be protected from any repercussions of the collapse, especially any that might strengthen his son's hand against him. The rescue package Walpole put together meant that excessive scrutiny of the South Sea Company's affairs could be avoided. Being screened in this way from too much investigation would be highly welcome to quite a few rich and powerful people out there. Providing such staunch support in a time of need helped Walpole build himself a powerful and important network of allies. 
It naturally helped that one of these was the king who appointed ministers. So it's no surprise, I'm sure you'll agree, that it was to Walpole that the king had turned to head the government that cleaned up after the South Sea bubble. Since the title Prime Minister still wasn't official, he became First Lord of the Treasury, Chancellor of the Exchequer and Leader of the House of Commons. That last title was particularly significant. Rather than accepting promotion to the House of Lords, as was customary for someone in his role, Walpole stayed in the House of Commons. He clearly understood that, just as Parliament's power was increasing in relation to the King's, so within Parliament the authority of the Commons was growing in relation to that of the Lords, traditionally the more significant House. With his focus on managing politics, it made sense that Walpole chose to manage the Commons. He also became the indispensable bridge between Parliament and the King. It's true that 20 years after his appointment as head of government, he claimed, I unequivocally deny that I am sole and prime minister. The roles he was playing, however, in government, in parliament, in managing relations between the king and parliament, all meant that he truly was prime minister. That's how he's seen down to the present day, as Britain's first prime minister. And, curiously, he's still its longest serving. You see, he proved very smart at it. We'll have more about all that in our next episode when we talk about the Robinocracy, or the regime that Robin, Robert Walpole, created and headed for so many years. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.